From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Defense has two coronavirus firsts. Defense News reports the Pentagon says its first known fatality from the disease is a contractor at the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. USNI News reports the Naval Academy has its first case of a midshipman who's contracted the disease. A civilian employee of the Academy has tested positive too. The Labor Department will waive some affirmative action requirements for three months so companies can sell to the department more quickly because of the pandemic. The department says the waiver only applies to construction and service and supply contracts for COVID-19 relief. FCW reports the waiver lasts until June 17th. The pipeline of officials into the Defense Department has several more names. The Senate's confirmed former Air Force Sec Undersecretary Matt Donovan to be the new Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness and former Army General Counsel James McPherson to be Undersecretary of the Army. Defense News reports President Trump's nominated former Army Comptroller John Whitley to be the next director of the Cost Assessment and Program Evaluation Office. The pandemic's been a big test of continuity of operations plans and customer experience at agencies. The Thrift Savings Plan says it hasn't experienced any interruptions in service in the past several weeks. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, thanks very much for coming on. You and I have talked many times over the years about the IT infrastructure upgrades that you've done, and it strikes me that this is the time where the work that you've done is demonstrating the value of the money that you put into it. Am I reading that right? You are indeed. We have spent the past several years spending a lot of money and doing a lot of work to upgrade our infrastructure, to add security into our infrastructure. And so all of our staff has been under mandatory telework this week, but for the last week, week and a half, it was encouraged telework. Um, and last Thursday, we had an all-agency test to make sure it would work. We had uh, feds and contractors who use our, our network. We're all using our VPN. Everything worked as it should, and we're incredibly pleased and gratified. What are the main building blocks that you think that you put into place over the years to permit that to happen? Because not every agency is experiencing the same kind of success. Um, I think what we did was we focused on the basics. We worked on making sure that we had security built in from the very bottom. Um, we made sure that everyone was provided a federal laptop that had the security built in and everyone was coming in through a VPN to try and add that extra layer of security onto it. And again, that has proven to work. We also, uh, in my non-technical way, we expanded the pipes uh -huh. that allowed it allowed people so that when we had 750 people coming in on the VPN, it, it didn't crash. Yeah. So from a continuity of operations perspective, you got a lot of working parts at the thrift savings plan. You got the call centers. I imagine the call centers are experiencing more volume than they normally do and all those kinds of things. What what's kind of going on behind the scenes at the TSP in light of the fact that, to be honest, people have a little bit more time on their hands than they normally would. We're kind of like the duck, you know, you see the duck that yeah. you don't see underneath, but the little feet are paddling, paddling, paddling. Um, 
the call centers have been taking a higher uh, volume of calls. They have been handling it in our normal service levels, which is picking up the phone in 20 seconds, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and what we're looking to do is uh, see how we could, if we needed to, have our vendors um, take calls from home to the extent that they are in locations where their governments are telling them they should not be um, close together. And we're trying to make sure that we can do everything that we need to do to service our participants, but do it remotely. Um, and as you might imagine, while we had sort of, we, we focused on our feds, when you focus on a contractor workforce, that expands the, the dynamic a little bit more. Now, we talk about participants. I imagine with the ups and downs, mostly downs in the market over the last couple of weeks, you've gotten some calls. What are most people doing right now? Well, we have had a spike in interfund transfers, but that has been from 5% of our participants. 95% of participants have done nothing. And what we would like to urge people is to consider what their plan was. And now no one planned for this, right? No one planned for the market to just go poof. But to the extent that they had a plan to stick with their plan and don't feel that they have to do something uh, because they don't. Mm -hmm. Every Pretty much every long-term investment advisor that I've heard anything from in the last month has said this is a buying opportunity not a time to get out of for example uh, the C fund and the S fund and the I fund um, that the, that's it, selling now is selling at the at the downtime and not the best what's moving forward for the TSP are you staying the course in the coming weeks and months as we see what happens or is there something over the horizon that you want to do to try to make sure that you keep your continuity of operations flowing the way that it has so far? We're continuing to focus, as you might imagine, on sort of worst case scenario, what happens if um, people can't get to the office so that if the people who um, uh, process our forms can't get the mail and how do we uh, work around that? Um, how do we keep answering phone calls if people have to work from home, if the call center employees have to work from home? Um, obviously what's paramount is people's health and safety. Um, then making sure that we can continue to service our TSP participants. And so those are the two issues that we are hyper-focused on. But other things uh, continue. Uh, we are rolling out five-year L funds in July, um, Knockwood, and all the work that is going on to make sure that that happens is ongoing. So we're not stopping the stuff. It may be a little slower than we anticipated uh, because of the resource diversion, but we are continuing to move forward. We have about 30 seconds left, Kim. Is there any way to gauge how these timelines might change, if at all, or are you just bound and determined to try to stick to them as closely as possible, despite everything that's going on? We're pretty bound and determined. Um, as, as we started off, we've got the infrastructure in place that will allow us to move forward. It's just to the extent that someone's pulled off to help with a project we didn't anticipate, that could potentially slow us down, but not in our game plan at all. Kim Weaver, the TSP, thanks very much for joining me. Appreciate having you on. Thank you, Francis.
Up next, easing the path to doing business with agencies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, top trends in contracting from a leader who's been there. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. The Defense Department stepping up its effort to use commercial technologies for military applications. All three branches say doing that will help them field capabilities faster. Bill Lynn is Chief Executive Officer at Leonardo DRS and former Deputy Secretary of Defense. Bill, it's good to see you again. Thanks good for to coming see you, up. Francis. What are the big trends that you're seeing in the business that you're doing with DOD? What are they asking you to do that maybe they haven't asked you to do in the past, or what are they asking you to do more of? Well, the first thing they're asking is they want things faster. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Army has set up the Futures Command, the Navy is focused on key technologies like hypersonics, the Air Force has set up the Space Command and the Space Force, and so, and everybody wants things faster. The world's moving, moving faster. DOD is trying to keep up. Takes two to tango, of course. What is, what are they doing or what can they do to help you deliver faster for them? And what can industry do to meet that need for speed that the services are asking? Well, Francis, it's all about investment. And to have investment, you need to understand what the department's priorities are. And for the department to be able actually to display its priorities, they need stability. That's why that budget agreement that laid out at least two years of stable funding and a path forward was so important. The department can't uh, plan if it's changing its budget on six-month cycles. Mm -hmm. It needs five-year cycles. Once the department can lay out then that spending plan, industry can focus on where to invest and how much to invest and how fast. And so that the, the key is to focus uh, the department on stability and the industry on investing in the department's priorities. So a number of the puzzle pieces that we've seen over the last two, three years it would seem to me make that job easier. National defense strategy is the overarching yep. scene setter. Army Big Six, Navy articulates a 355-ship fleet and is in the process of a uh, fleet structure assessment to demonstrate exactly what that is. Uh, similar uh, plan from the Marine Corps. These things are all out there now, it seems to me, and driving your ability to decide where you want to invest. Am I reading this right? No, I think you are. I think it's a better world than we were in three or four years ago with the constant budget fights and shutting the government down and, and not knowing where where we were going how far how fast now with the kinds of things you laid out with the with the strategy with uh, investment strategies army priorities navy force structure targets you're starting to be able to hone in uh, on what what's next and and where industry can support the department does an environment like a national defense strategy environment where we're thinking about primarily two peer competitors look different from an industry perspective than the environment we were in and when we were thinking primarily about what's happening in Afghanistan and Iraq? Yeah, no, I mean, the big shift, uh, I give Jim Mattis credit in shifting the strategy away from focus on lower intensity conflicts, on insurgencies, on the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq and saying over the, the longer arc, the threats are going to come from China and from Russia. We need to focus our force structure on that. We need to focus our investment strategy on that. We need to uh, focus our technology planning on that. And I think the strategy that he put out at the start of the administration, which, which really laid that out in some, some detail and some direction, I think has really helped the department plan 
particularly along with budget stability, and it's helped industry then understand where to invest and what the department's priorities are. How should industry best signal to the department, we hear your message, and here's where we're betting that we're going to be able to help you meet the mission needs that you've articulated? Well, I mean, I, I think industry has to pick the competitions it's uh, most effective at. That's, uh, I think, one of the advantages my company, Leonardo DRS, has is we're a little bit smaller than the big guys. We're a mid-tier, but that actually is make, makes our decision-making more agile. It makes our investment strategy uh, have a faster turn, and so I think we're able to react to the department's priorities in an expeditious fashion. What's the most important thing that you think you can do supply chain-wise? There's a big emphasis coming out, particularly out of Ellen Lord's office, about the supply chain. What do you think is the most uh, important thing that you or any industry partner can do to demonstrate the commitment that you have to the integrity of the supply chain, Bill? Cyber assurance. I think if, if you can de demonstrate that all, all, not just the stuff that we build, mm -hmm. but the, the stuff that we get from our suppliers is protected all the way along that supply chain. I think that's this is the CMMI that Ellen Lord is uh, putting into place. Uh, I think that's the the key uh, the key change now in the supply chain. What do you what will you watch moving forward? Will it just be what Congress, what the committees of authorization and appropriation do regarding a budget deal for this year and subsequent years, or are there other things maybe coming out of the building or uh, coming out of the hill? that will be important for you and companies like you to pay attention to? I think the biggest thing you're going to be watching is we've, we've entered a period where the, the defense budget is very high. As I said, it's stable, mm -hmm. but it's plateauing. I, I, we're not expecting big increases. What that means then is the department's going to have to make trade-offs. The Navy is going to have to make trade-offs between their uh, ship target, the 355 ships, and accelerating new technology into the fleet. The Army is going to have to make trade-offs between protecting its end strength because the cost of that end strength goes up every year. It's not static. Mm -hmm. uh, if the budget's not going up with it, there's a, a trade-off uh, with investment. The Marines you're already see, seeing, they're prepared to sacrifice some force structure to get investment. But what, from industry, what you're watching is what, is each, what are each of the services doing in that trade-off space? Are they emphasizing force structure? Are they emphasizing investment? Are they emphasizing procurement of current items or are they emphasizing investment in future technologies? I think those are the signals you're looking for. Bill Lynn, it's great to have you back. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Francis. Always happy to be here. Up next, improving coordination efforts in emergency response. Straight ahead on Government Matters, duplication elimination strategies to deliver more effective services. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Back. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is now the lead agency in the federal government's response to the coronavirus. Deputy Director for Management Margaret Weicker told you on the Sunday edition of Government Matters, every CFO Act agency is on the front lines. Robert Shea is principal at Grant Thornton Public Sector. He's former associate director at the Office of Management and Budget. Robert, thanks very much for coming on as always. What's the important thing to keep in mind regarding all of these disparate agencies going all of these disparate directions in a time like this, in a response like this? I think the most important thing is to find out who's in charge and listen to what they're saying. Uh, unfortunately, that's rotated a lot in the last several weeks. 
First, we've had the Centers for Disease Control. Then we've had the National Institutes for Health. Now we've had a bio a pandemic coordinator. Now we have the Federal Emergency Management Agency. It's hard to keep track of, and it's one of the underlying uh, dangers of having so many overlapping and duplicative functions involved in responding to a crisis. But it looks like today we should be listening to the director of FEMA. Why, so you say today we should be listening to the director of FEMA and the implication there is that the possibility is that that changes. It's, possi it's possible that changes because of the, the nature of whatever happens next in this, isn't it? Or is, is it possible, even in something that morphs the way this has, to establish some organization in charge and not change it? No, that's right. The, the, the crisis evolves uh, and the individuals who are taking the lead are responding to the specific needs at the time. Um, as this health crisis um, dies down, you'll see this become more of an economic recovery. And then the Treasury Department, the Commerce Department. Um, uh, those those will be the ones we'll be listening to for how to respond. You mentioned duplicative and overlapping programs. You and I have spoken on many occasions in many different media about the Government Accountability Office's list of those three things, about the inventory that I believe the first person to propose an inventory of what every agency does was Senator Coburn when he was still in the Senate. Um, it, we haven't gotten very far on that. It strikes me this is the time where a resource like that would be valuable to basically know where all your stuff is. Yeah, you know, pretty soon I'm going to propose that they change the name of that organization to the Office of Government. I told you so. Back in 2011, GAO warned that a catastrophic biological event, such as a naturally occurring pandemic, could cause mass casualties, weaken the economy, damage public morale, and threaten national security. Uh, as recently as February, they released a report that applauded the administration for uh, developing a biodefense strategy, but pointed out that because so many agencies were involved, knowing what the gaps are in, in a response and, and who's responsible for filling those gaps is critical. They also noted a biodefense strategy is not a response plan. And we're seeing a little bit play out today the impact of a lack of that response plan. Another aspect about particularly the coronavirus response that you and I have talked about on a number of occasions is the way that this resembles in some ways what the government experienced during the various shutdowns of the last number of years. What do you think the parallels are and what do you think the dramatic differences are in the way that a leader in government should think about continuity of operations, the work that's being done, anything like that? So the parallels are that you, um, we're not going into the office. A lot of the federal workforce is kept away from their, uh, the places they work on a day-to-day -day basis. The distinction is that today everybody's still got to perform work. Um, uh, and they have the challenge of doing it over technology. Hopefully, many agencies have tried and tested their telework capabilities. Um, if they haven't, they're finding out where the, those weaknesses are. Um, uh, and, and those will have to grow over time. Who knows? The, the other distinction between the shutdown and this crisis is that 
we don't know how long this one will go on. Mm -hmm. We knew pretty intuitively when a shutdown would end. We're just not sure when this will end. And we don't know exactly what will happen and what the degree of back to normal will happen when it ends either. So the end game is tremendously hard to predict, it strikes me. What do you think people should be learning from this to apply to the next time? Another question we asked during the shutdown. What do we learn from this one to apply when this happens again? And it probably will happen again based on what you talked about about the GAO from eight, nine years ago. Yeah, one of the things I think we've learned is that we need to be pretty practiced at what flexibilities agencies need to offer their employment, their, their federal workforce and their contractor workforces. And of course, as I mentioned, technology is a key enabler and will need to be in place in the future. One of the things I need to we, we need to look at is the amount of money that's gonna be going through agency procurement pipes is gonna be uh, unprecedented, doesn't really capture the amount of money that's going to have to flow both uh, both to get money spent before the end of this uh, fiscal year but also to respond to the to the crisis and the recovery robert shave grant thornton even when you're working from home you bring the bow tie it's great to see you my friend thank you good to see you if you've missed the show or you're on the go you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can subscribe every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC 7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.